Hi, I'm Sean Eckford, a member of the board of directors here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts and producer of our daily festival podcasts. We opened our day one podcast with Carol Off, so makes sense to open the day two podcast with her husband, Lyndon McIntyre. He was on stage Friday night. His novel, The Only Cafe, was inspired by a story Lyndon covered as a reporter, the massacre at the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps in Lebanon in the 80s. And he talked about how an incident involving some boys interfering with the filming of a TV segment escalated and how that planted the seeds of his jump from journalism to fiction. At that moment, I felt as I had felt on that grim day a year earlier, but maybe a little bit more uh, extensively. I felt that I was somehow a real part of the phenomenon that produces all this sorrow and humiliation. A phenomenon. I'll just call it that. A phenomenon that is historical and political and philosophical. And I was part of it. A phenomenon that was propelling this kid and maybe thousands of kids just like him along the road to violence, along the road to war. And I was and would forever be his enemy. The memory of those boys in Beirut stayed with me for years. In time, I realized that those memories were too complex and too subjective to ever be processed through the medium of journalism. Eventually, I realized that if I was ever to make any sense of those memories, it would require another kind of storytelling. The starlight that greeted festival goers as they left Linden's presentation was still with us Saturday morning as we gathered to celebrate the late Richard Wagamese, a great friend of the festival, whose novel, Starlight, has just been published posthumously. On the stage with Catherine Gretzinger were Carly Baker and Philip Kevin Paul, along with Sunshine Coast actor Janet Hodgkinson, who did some readings from the book. If he was taciturn, it was because he found words mostly inaccurate and awkward and chose economy over the fumbling speeches he endured in other men. Roth was the gregarious one. Starlight enjoyed the rants the skinny man made and allowed himself to take a side in the wild discussions Roth could spark, only because he loved seeing Roth's energy fill a room. Now they sat in silence, admiring the landscape. The elongated valley set down between a line of mountains on either side, the farms lush and green with the early summer, and the smell of hay and manure and horses through the open windows. He loved this land, loved it in a quiet way, expressed in a slight crinkling at the corner of his eyes when he looked out across it, and a feeling of calm like silence deep in his gut. He needed nothing more than the farm and the solitary time he spent on the land on horseback or on foot. He knew no word for wild. For starlight, the backcountry was like a prayer or a hymn, and a man approached it the same way, reverently, quietly, fully aware of the awe, wonder, and respect it caused to rise in him. 
He lived for it and craved it like a favorite meal. The town was small. There was a single main street with five parallel streets and six avenues slashed across those. The town fathers had chosen height restrictions back when the old man was alive, and there wasn't a single building beyond three stories. The majority of the homes had been built near the turn of the century, with the newer, more modern homes erected along the edges of the town, so that entering it was like traveling backwards in time, and Starlight always found himself slowing below the speed limit as he approached, allowing the atmosphere, at once timeless and rustic, to enter him. It pleased him to come to town. He relished the fact of knowing the people he dealt with, knowing their histories, their families, their faces seemingly hewn from the stuff of the town itself, ruddy and fair and unmarred by things like time and progress. The few times he turned up at church on a Sunday were episodes of great community, and he felt proud to be known and recognized. Living elsewhere had never occurred to him again after he'd made the U-turn at the end of his driveway after the old man passed. This was his home, and these were his people. He supposed he was old-fashioned. If it were true, he could live with it. His bachelor status was something credited to him rather than gossiped about. Even the fact of his Indianness was just another element in the rich stew that comprised the word hometown. He felt no urge to discover more about that. For Starlight, the farm was his heritage and culture, the plain-spoken earnestness of his neighbors, all the language he needed, and the feel of the land beneath his feet, all the philosophy and worldview that fed his sense of purpose. A night sky brimmed with stars, the snap and crackle of a fire behind him in the darkness, and the howls of wolves on distant ridges were all the spirituality he'd ever needed. He was not displaced or dispossessed. He was home. In that, he felt keenly alive. Skin color and difference jangled in his perception of place. He was simply a member of a community like he always had been and he occupied his small place in it with dignity, industry, and an affable neighborliness he'd become known for. Quiet Frank, that's what they called him. Big Frank, too, sometimes. But his size was not his measure. The quality of his stillness was. Now, it sometimes is the case with a posthumously published book, Wagamese hadn't actually gotten around to finishing it, and the panel discussed why the publishers decided to leave it in that state and drop a few clues as to where they thought he might be going with the final denouement. M&S published it, and um, they didn't finish it. Uh, what happened is the story does come to a, a, a conclusion, which I won't spoil. Um, it, it comes to part, part of the story. 
reaches a, a, a conclusive ending. And then um, uh, what MS did, there's a little bit in the prologue and a little bit in the afterward where they um, provide insight based on uh, Wagamese's um, uh, friends and confidants about where they feel the story was going. And then there's also an um, uh, uh, essay in the end that is sort of along the same lines. So I was, re I was very curious, like, who on earth would write the last 40, who could think that they could write the last 40 pages of that story? And the answer was, nobody. <laughs> if, I could do a, if I could do a reverse spoiler, uh, you, you, you read the beginning, and or the, the, the prologue, or the, um, you know, forward or whatever, you know, and, 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 it's, um, and it refers to the essay that they have at the end. So I went right to the end and read the essay. Don't do that. I, I think you just did a spoiler on yourself. <laughs> there is, there's a letter at the front, dear reader. So it, it sets you up to, to, to go through. And then you get to make up your own ending, which is kind of what Richard did. So it's sort of beautiful in that way too. Today also happened to be the day for the event I moderated with Ed Struzik, author of Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future, and Aaron Williams, who wrote Chasing Smoke, a memoir of his years with the BC Wildfire Service. At one point, Ed raised the international shape that firefighting response has now taken, especially in BC when it gets busy. Provincial firefighting resources just aren't enough to be able to handle this new paradigm that we're seeing happen now. That's why there are firefighters all from all across Canada, the United States, and other countries dealing with these fires. So right now, we're, it's almost like an international firefighting team that we're shifting resources from one country, one province, on a, on, on a regular basis. And in some cases, and you'll probably agree with me, is that, that it's hard for, at least I'm told by fire managers, is that sometimes bringing in firefighters from someplace else is a bit of a pain in the ass. Because, you know, there's a difference between fighting a fire on flat land, say, in Newfoundland, and fighting fires in the mountains, because fire moves up a mountainside 30% faster than it does on flat land. And the firefighters, uh, you know, and then you've got to do like the South African firefighters came into Fort McMurray, went on strike because they realized they weren't getting the same pay. And an emergency, you know, which is understandable, but at the same time, you're in an emergency situation, you're trying to deploy people from one place to another, and you've got one significant group deciding, well, we're not going to work unless we get the same amount of pay. It complicates things an awful lot. And there's also the pilots that come in from different parts. I remember uh, the Kootenai fire. I was on that fire in 2003. And the resources were so strained that, that summer that they were calling in everybody and anyone. And they, they had this one old geezer from Texas that came in with this big putt-putt plane that was vintage. And he barely landed the thing, you know. And he came out with, uh, you know, he says, I'm ready. And, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's a worst, that's a worst case scenario, but that's, that's the kind of point that it's got. So I don't think we, we, we've got to start thinking differently. We, we, you know, we've got the best firefighting teams in, in the world here. Aaron's part of it. It's just we can't rely on them to be able to do it all. When you're in a camp with a bunch of Australians and firefighters from around the world, are they a pain in the ass? Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, we should have checked to see if there were any it's, in the it's audience. Hard to, it's, it's hard to say this diplomatically. It does uh, come up in the book. Yeah, it, it does come up in the book, I guess. But it's, it is not a good situation. I think you, you, know, you get all these different people with different standards and stuff like that from around the world. And, and some are fantastic. We, uh, we brought Mexicans up, I think, maybe for the first time last year. And they were terrific, like nothing but good reports from them. But you bring in um, some other pe people from other provinces, and um, they're, sometimes it's kind of like they're out there for a party. You know, it's like they're they're at fire camp and they're they're keeping people awake, and they're they're not obviously they're not doing much on the fire line the next day. So we definitely have a long way to go as far as uh, standardizing stuff across the country, I think, will be good. Um, making sure fitness standards are high. And um, just a change in, in culture, I guess. We, it's, you know, it's, it's much more serious business now than it used to be. And, um, and I think s some people still don't, don't treat it that way. Now, when it came time for questions, somebody also asked about calling in the armed forces. The response was similar. Hi, I'm just wondering when the armed forces come in to assist you at fires, are they well trained and prepared and better behaved than some of the other people that come from afar? Are they Australian? Um, I was actually just texting with a friend yesterday, and uh, she, her quote was, Oh great, the Navy is here to help. <laughs> So, so yes, yes to the apologies, and, and yes to the discipline. Um, they're very good that way, um, but it's uh, they, the training they have. I, I think it's a lot more theory, um, and it's not really the right use of that resource. I don't think. Did you have anything to add on that one, Ed? Uh, just a funny little story. When I was in Alaska in 2016. Uh, they had pulled out all the firefighters that year, the U.S. Forest Service firefighters and the state firefighters, because it was a really wet year. But then it suddenly got really hot for about a week in, in, uh, in August, and uh, the only people they had to rely on was uh, the, the military that was still up there. And I kid you not, the, uh, the name of the commander or the head, head of the, the group, his name was uh, Colonel Kurtz. <laughs> <laughs> who figured that if he just used a lot of Blackhawks and had people throwing pails of water out, they could do it. Now, as much fun as it actually is to be on the festival stage, it does take a bit of time. So I've brought in some help. Sophie Woodruff, who's a reporter with me at the Coast Reporter here in Seashelt. I sent her out into the field this afternoon to catch up with author Asma Zenat Khan, an accomplished academic with a PhD in international human rights law and the author of a series of thrillers. How's the experience been here at the Writers' Festival? It has been absolutely wonderful. First, it's a beautiful setting, so who would not love being here? And I came in by seaplane, which was magical. And then just to be in a community of people who love to read and who love fiction and to have so much support, and even to see all the sponsorships, it really is encouraging as a writer because this is a very chancy profession and getting people to know your work is very difficult. So the support of a festival like this means a lot. I understand you, you kind of spent a lot of time in Saskatchewan and, and, and um, also have called Toronto home, but you're actually going through the process of becoming a U.S. citizen, and there was a bit of a, ooh, <laughs> in the crowd. A gasp of dismay is what I would call that. <laughs> but yes, I recently became an American citizen, my husband and myself both. 
we thought, well, one, the United States has given us lots of job opportunities. Um, we've met a lot of amazing people, but also we felt a sense of insecurity about what was coming next, though we thought it was important for us to protect ourselves by getting citizenship as quickly as we could. Do you normally get those kinds of reactions when you when you uh, <laughs> describe the process of becoming a U.S. citizen in Canada? Um, not, what, not when I'm giving a talk on the other side of the border. People are usually very happy for me. Um, that's a great... No, I think this was the first time I had such an intense reaction to that news. Uh, this is the fourth installment of, of, of your uh, detective series, and uh, you, you said um, th- that it's, it actually took a, a year to write, and, and, and the subject matter being so difficult that it was actually one of the hardest uh, pieces that you've written. And uh, an audience member had asked, how, how did you, you know, what got you through the writing process? And I, I, I was curious just to, he- to hear you um, kind of expand on that a little bit and, and, and how, how you did manage to, to do that. Well, partly it was just time, a little bit of time away from the material, realizing that I'm not the one who's suffering all these things that I describe in A Dangerous Crossing. Um, and also a lot of it is when you see the work of all these different people around the world and on the ground, either NGOs or ind- individuals or small communities, they're always doing such brave and hopeful things in the face of this overwhelming despair. So one thing I often say is that I never see an egregious or horrendous human rights abuse without also seeing a corresponding spark of decency in other people to address it. So I think that's one of the things that always keeps you going. You remember that, that they're doing something and you can do something. Got it. Um, And I guess this kind of brings me to my next question, which is just the nature of your your books. I mean, they're mystery, crime thrillers, you know, you've got fantasy, but they, as you mentioned, they, they also encompass these greater themes um, and they incorporate, incorporate kind of current political events. Um, and obviously it helps that you have a PhD in international human rights law. Um, but I was curious, like, what, what inspires you to bring fact and fiction together? Well, partly it's because I've had a lifelong interest in human rights, and as a human rights advocate, I think it's important to tell stories about issues that often don't see the light of day, or when they do see the light of day, it's through a very narrow prism. So to provide a a fuller picture, more context, and often I think people get more drawn into a fictional story. They might not want to come and sit in an hour and a half lecture on the refugee crisis, but if they can connect with the humanity of the characters, they might be, and I often hear this from my readership, that they've then gone on to read other things or to get involved or to get more engaged on the subjects or to, f- to find these alternate points of view. Um, but also, I'm from a South Asian family, so if I didn't use my legal education, I'd be in big trouble. So <laughs> there we go. Did you know that you wanted to write fiction, or did you know that you wanted to get, go into law first? Well, I've actually been writing fiction since I was a kid, so I always wanted to be a writer, but I am the child of immigrants for whom many points of their lives were a great struggle, so for them, stability and security were very important, and they always, always emphasized the importance of an education and being able to support myself, so I think those two instincts were always at war, but what I really find touching and also hilarious about my family and my parents is I come from this culture and literary tradition where literature is venerated it's so important but the idea that anyone's kid might want to write for a living is no you get yourself to medical school or law school (laughs) and uh, how do your how do your folks feel about your um twinning those careers now very happy they're very happy for me i mean they've always been so supportive of my writing what authors inspire you Oh, that's a great question. My favorite author of all time is the Lebanese-French writer Amin Malouf. He's got 
an amazing, amazing catalog of books, and I love them all. But my favorite book of all time is one of his. It's called Samarkand. That's a book that I love. And he writes books about the Islamic civilization, but he's got a very thorough depth of knowledge, but he's a Lebanese Christian, and he, um, he has such a light touch. His wit is hilarious. I love his books. I love Anne Patchett. I love about 50 to 60 mystery series writers like Louise Penny. Um, I love Attica Locke. I love Gigi Pandian. There's a new writer from England called Amr Anwar who wrote a great book that's set in a Punjabi community in South Hall. That's, it's called um, Brothers in Blood. That's a great book. But yeah, my list is endless. <laughs> J.K. Rowling. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, thanks so much for taking the time with us. Thank you so much for having me. The other thing I had Sophie do while she was prowling the grounds here at Rockwood was uh, talk to some of our festival goers, just find out how they're enjoying things, who they're here to see, what they're doing. And she came across one particularly interesting character, Aslan Nelson. I was told that there's there's someone now I know your name Aslan, <laughs> who's been on on the grounds with a sketchbook, um, kind of creating creating a world unto himself. Mm. And yeah. uh, here you are. So I was curious, what what brings you here, and 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 what are you sketching? Um, I'm well. I'm here because uh, it's a family tradition of ours to. Um, come to the Writers Festival and my aunt and uncle all the way from the East Coast come try to come here every year because it's a good opportunity to see family. I was sketching um, uh, like I'm, I'm working on writing a story. It might be a graphic novel which is why I'm drawing so much and yeah I get really inspired when I'm around other artists too so yeah. And your, your sketchbook is right, right in front of front of us yes. it, it, can I be so bold as to as to ask to take a quick look at what you've been up to sure oh wow this was a coloring sheet I did for some kids at my work because I work at the Y <coughs> YMCA in Vancouver yeah and um, this is just some like redesigns of characters I like of that other people have Created. Wow, they're incredible. They're high detailed. They almost look like superheroes. I yeah. see, um, you know, people uh, decked out in you know big shoulders and, and, yeah. and uh, forearm guards and boots. Tell me about these drawings. Who are they? Oh, this is Robin <laughs> from Batman and Robin. Um, my, the story I'm working on is actually like a superhero story, but it's not like it's not your like conventional superhero story. It, deals with a lot of like um social justice issues i think so t tell me about your character do you have a do you have a drawing of your character here oh yeah oh, this is him right here uh, can you describe what he looks like he's like um a mummy kind of with glasses that's really about it <laughs> shades I, I can't see his eyes yeah and so what's he fighting for like against crime in general it's not so much about like what he's fighting against it's more about like him as a character like it's more about like the relationships and like the internal things than what's going on outside and for my character like kind of figuring out his own his own journey and kind of yeah. figuring himself out as he yeah and his relationships with other characters too 
it's like kind of a love triangle so it gets kind of complicated but it's uh, all right i won't make you go into the details <laughs> okay. um you said that you come here often with your family uh every year yeah is this the first time that you've you've been sketching while you're here or do you know i'm usually found sketching <laughs> and and i'm just uh curious like what is it about about this place that that you mentioned kind of inspiration so I'm just you know where does that come from for you what is it about here that that brings you inspiration Mm, seeing finished products is really nice (laughs) and uh, also uh, hearing about other artists um, creative processes really gives me ideas and like inspires me like kind of like gets me energized and gets me going like uh sort of makes the obstacles that i feel like are in my way seem much smaller and like they're not really there you know i can just plow forward (laughs) maybe like one of your characters sorry yeah yeah so now you're up to speed on day two of the sunshine coast festival the written arts People are starting to drift back now into the grounds after a dinner break for Giller Prize winner Michael Redhill and the Hutchinson Memorial Lecture from Deborah Campbell. If you're joining us, we'll see you there.